every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Udi Lettergore, CMO of Gong. A five-time VP of marketing, Udi has 20 years of experience heading marketing teams and is an expert in helping B2B companies grow faster by optimizing and transforming their marketing efforts. On this episode, Udi discusses the synergy between Gong's demand gen efforts and brand plays and lays out the content strategy that he uses to drive the inbound and outbound motions that generate thousands of MQLs every month. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Udi Lettergore, CMO of Gong, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host and CEO of Caspian Studios. Udi, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you on today, a true demand gen visionary here to talk about your career and talk about everything that is going on at Gong. Our listeners can check out gong.io. If you don't know about it already, check them out and we're going to get deep into it. So what was your first job in demand gen? Well, that's a tricky one. I've been a marketer and a VP marketing at five different companies. Each one looked a little bit different. Some areas I focused more on brand, some it was even more around product marketing. I'd say the first true demand gen machine that I built was at a company called Panaya. I was there, I think, from 2009 to 2013 or 14. That was the first true demand gen machine that I built. And then so flash forward to today, tell me about being CMO at Gong. Yeah, so I'm, I'm at Gong, the leading revenue intelligence platform. For those who aren't familiar with us yet, shame on me, you should be. What we do is we're an AI platform for salespeople. We capture all of sales teams, customer interactions. We understand what goes on in those interactions. And then we surface insights that allow salespeople and their leaders to make better decisions on improving the skills of salespeople, on understanding the true deal pipeline and on intervening in deals that need it in order to win more deals. I've been with Gong for four years now exactly. I think I joined as employee number 15. So my CEO, Amit Bendov, called me back then and told me that they'd rolled out a beta product, very early beta, to 12 customers. And 11 out of the 12 had already paid three months into the beta to become a subscriber. The 12th customer came around a few months later and Amit called me in to start building demand gen to get the show on the road. Fast forward four years later, I'm managing a team of 12. The company has 350 employees and about 1,300 customers with, I think, 65,000 users using Gong every day. So uh, we've come pretty far by now. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? So this is where we go. You can feel honest and trusted. You can share those deep, dark demand gen secrets. 
What is your demand gen strategy? So my demand gen strategy, and, and it was very similar to what we did at Panaya that worked there very well. And of course, we've improved on it and made many changes here at, at Gong. Here's the really simplified truth. We create darn good content, which we've been creating since day one. And in our case, just to give some context for those who don't read our content yet, we create content based on insights that we glean from millions of sales conversations that we have recorded of our customers talking to their customers. So we analyze them in aggregated, anonymized way. And then we see what actually works and doesn't work in sales. Now, if, if you search Amazon for books on sales, you'll find thousands of books, but very few of them use any sort of data to make their recommendations on what you should do and not do. So we were probably the first company to come out with consistent data-backed content that showed sales teams what is working and what isn't working so they could get better consistently. And that has been our content strategy for the last four years. Now, we use that content to drive both our inbound and our outbound motions. The way we use it for outbound is we create thousands of MQLs or marketing qualified leads every month by looking at who's consuming our content and attending our webinars, downloading our eBooks. And if they're the right person at the right target account, that will trigger an alert to an outbound SDR who can then start a conversation with that prospect. So that is in a nutshell, the simplified outbound motion. And that I believe creates about 60% of our opportunity pipeline. On the inbound side, the same content will drive people that are far enough in their buying journey to go to our website. And so we maximize the traffic of relevant folks to our website. And then we incorporate several conversion optimization techniques on our website to convert the relevant people to actually ask us for a demo or a pricing request. And that's what brings in about 40% of our pipeline. For some context, in Q2, the last quarter that ended, we had north of 3,000 inbound demo requests on our website, most of them a result of the content strategy that I just explained. And what does your team look like? How do you align them on demand gen and then also obviously not on demand gen? Sure. So my team is currently split into two sub-teams. The larger one with eight people on it is the demand gen team. The second smaller team is the product marketing and category creation team. So demand gen team being the big one has a couple of content creation folks. So they define our content strategy and execute on it, mostly internally with very little external help. For example, we have a data scientist who goes through all, all that call data that I told you about to surface insights and stories that the content team can then craft into a plain English story. We have a couple of marketing operations people as part of that team. And they do all the behind the scenes magic and manage all the plumbing of probably a dozen systems that we've stitched together in custom ways to optimize the inbound and outbound lead flows to make sure that we can respond to a lead within minutes of them coming in or consuming a piece of content. So two content, two marketing ops, one events person, our talented Danny, who started out managing field events and is now managing managing all of our virtual events. Then we have our ABM campaign manager who manages the upper market segments and deals with our enterprise and strategic accounts by delivering personalized experiences through virtual events, direct mails, roundtables, and many other conniving schemes. And then we have Mike, our digital marketer, who manages all of our online advertising, whether it's Google or LinkedIn and other platforms. So that's the demand gen team. And then on the product marketing side, we have a product marketer and a customer marketer 
who deals a lot with marketing to our own customers to encourage renewals and upsells, and also share our many, many customer success stories in the form of case studies, bringing them to speak at webinars and events and other ways that we do that. Let's talk a little bit about your market and your persona. Can you share more like who are you selling to and what does that kind of buying committee look like? Sure. Our primary buyer is the senior sales leader at the buying organization. That's typically the chief revenue officer or the VP of sales. At larger, like very large organizations, that could be a VP of sales operations, sometimes even a VP of sales enablement if they have someone that senior in that function. But our, our best deployments have been when the senior sales leadership is running the show and involved at an early stage. And that's probably a good opportunity to segue into sort of why we created the revenue intelligence category. The idea there was to get the attention and keep the attention of senior revenue leadership. We noticed that as we were going up market, many times when we talked about our previous category, conversation intelligence, we used to get bumped down to sales enablement because it sounded like a tactical tool. But after switching to revenue intelligence, we find that we get a lot more face time with senior leadership because revenue is something senior leadership is very interested in. So that is our best buyer. As far as the buying committee, sales ops at the medium to large organizations is definitely involved. And the larger the organization, the more involvement we'll also see from departments like IT, security, and of course, then procurement and finance. Yeah, sure. And you know, that chief revenue officer position, which is obviously we all know is, is evolving and is becoming more tech savvy, more tech motivated than ever before, especially, you know, with uh, everything with the pandemic. But how engaged are they on the technology solutions on finding those things? As you said, you know, you're building a category for these folks for this to be at the forefront of bringing data to the sales process, but that might not be always uh, very well received. Yes. Yeah, so, so good question. I'll, I'll attempt to answer. You, you let me know if I didn't succeed too. So most of the users on our platform, I mentioned we have around 65,000 users. Most of them are the sales reps themselves and their frontline managers. The CRO, she usually doesn't go into our platform very often, although we do have quite a few customers where the CRO is involved and they will take the dashboards and insights that they get from Gong and, and bring them to the boardroom to show them what's working, how their market is responding to their latest messaging and product offering and other things. So in many ways, it's also up to us to educate that market and that type of user. And also, we, we have some ways to go with providing more value to that very senior leadership within our product. We've been very successful with creating tens of thousands of raving fans amongst the, the AEs and their frontline managers, not as much with the CROs yet. But when the CROs or the VP sales see how successful their teams have become and they can see the demonstrated ROI. Our customers are reporting a shorter ramp time for new reps. They're reporting a shorter sales cycle because they can hone in on what's working and not working and correct their pitch. And different revenue metrics like that, once they see that, it doesn't really matter if the CRO goes into the tool every day. What matters is that they see the value that their team is getting out of it. So in that sense, anything that can improve, you know, metrics like win rates, sales cycle, deal velocity, ramp time is very interesting to a VP of sales. That's totally true. And obviously, you know, you, I'm sure your sales team is, is on your platform as well. Could you walk me through how a sales rep could do that and how you can market through it? We could use, for example, Jared Nielsen, who's my buddy, who is a, uh, a sales pro at Gong as, as a use case. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the way a sales rep would use Gong, you know, Gong connects to your conferencing systems and calendars and emails with just a few clicks and you do this only once. And I think one of the reasons for the great success of Gong and why it's spreading like wildfire is that we built it for the average rep who doesn't want to click anything, who doesn't want to fire up any software when they all they want to do is get on a call with the customer and close a deal. So we built it so their admin can connect all their systems once and then it just works. And so the way it works for those who haven't yet tried it is is when you jump on a Zoom call or a phone call with a customer, Gong will jump on that call with you just because we crawled your calendar and saw that you have a customer call with a Zoom link. And then Gong, using our patented technology, jumps on as a a participant in the call and announces itself. So they say this call is being recorded and they record the call. Uh, and there are different variations of how we do that for different collaboration systems. But the gist of it is that we record the call. We also ingest all of your emails with that customer directly from your G Suite or Microsoft email. And then we surface insights to you. So for example, we could show you in your pipeline, which deals you're not talking to the right people yet. So if we know because you told us once that you need to be talking to, say, VPs of sales to close deals, but we see that on some deals, you're only talking to managers and below, we'll flag that deal and we say, hey, Jared, you haven't been able to talk to a VP in this account yet. This shouldn't be in your forecast. Go and get that VP. We'll be able to look at things like how long you were talking on that call, how many questions you were asking, and compare that to what the best reps on your team is doing. So let's say that Jamie is the best rep on Jared's team. We can say, hey, Jared, look at what Jamie is doing. She switched around these two topics and you're spending more time on one topic and Jamie's spending time on another, but Jamie's closing more deals than you. So you might want to take a look at what she's doing and, and try switching around your, your pitch. And we've seen lots of real life examples where our customers look at those insights and sort of have a aha moment saying, wow, I didn't ever think of switching around these two things or spending more time on topic A rather than topic B. And they really see a turnaround in their results when they start acting on those insights. And how does that feedback to marketing? Because it seems like that would be such a powerful tool for marketing to have those insights as well. It, it is. It is. And I talk to CMOs and product marketers at many of our customer sites, and they're all huge fans of Gong because I'll just describe, you know, my internal use case. I automatically get reports every time something that I'm looking for, like a new term that we put into recent messaging. I want to see who's using it. How is it landing with customers? So I will get a daily report with links to all the calls where I can listen to reps using that and see how it's landing. So this is wonderful for market research. We have automatic tags or trackers for competitor mentions. So if someone is talking about a competitor, that gets tagged and not that we want to listen to every one of those calls, but we can track things like trends. So which competitor is coming up in our enterprise segment and is that on the rise or on the decline compared to last quarter? And you can imagine that working with large customers like the type that we have, we've helped them uncover insights like competitors that they didn't even realize were showing up in certain segments or were now showing up three times more than previously in certain segments. These are the sort of things that reps often go and complain about, but can't quantify. And then, you know, leadership will say, just go close your deals and stop complaining. But when you have this objective data showing that, you know what, your competitor is eating your lunch, they're showing up three times more than they did last quarter, you've got to think about either redoing your pitch or your competitive differentiation or changing something around what you're doing. And it can go much deeper than that. I'm giving the really simple use cases just to, to be clear, but some of our more sophisticated customers who want to get 
into the weeds. They'll analyze, show me advanced stage deals above $50,000 where we lost to this competitor. And then they'll go in and listen to those calls to see what their competitor is doing that they're losing deals in these situations. So they re-engineer their entire sales process. And it's just uncovering what's going on under the hood of the sales process in a way that was never possible before. Do you ever hop on the call or on a call with like the CMO of one of those companies to kind of have that moment of like, hey, this is how, you know, as a CMO, we use our platform and this is how you could do it. Like, are you involved in the sales process at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, with thousands of customers that we have, I can only jump on so many calls, but both my team and I do get called into calls where a marketing persona is playing an active role on the buying committee. We've seen that in many organizations, SDR teams belong to the CMO. That's a good example when the CMO is involved in the buying decisions, but not only there. And yes, the short answer is, uh, I'd say at least every other week or so, I get called into a call to speak to a high profile prospect where marketing leadership is looking at what they could be gaining out of Gong. And it's very easy for us to show them how we use Gong and also bring up examples from some of our other customers who are making really great creative uses of Gong for their marketing needs. Okay, let's get into our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. How about three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Yep. Uh, the three channels that I could not live without are our LinkedIn page, which I'm happy to dive into, our email list, and our virtual events slash webinars because they're not the same thing. Okay, yeah, let's do let's do LinkedIn page first because that's great. LinkedIn, and here I have to preface with a sort of disclaimer. You know, when I came into Gong four years ago, I had no idea where our audience is going to be. I didn't know if they're going to be on social media at all. When I worked for other companies, my audience was not on social media. Once I suspected they're on social media, I didn't know if they're going to be on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or somewhere else. It took some trial and testing until we found that our audience of sales leaders really lives on LinkedIn. They always have the tab open and they have the apps on their phone. They're looking for their next deal, their next hire, their next job, their next partnership, and lots of content to educate and entertain them on LinkedIn. Once we figured that out, we focused a lot of our efforts on creating content and engagement that really work on LinkedIn. And we do that both from our own people's profiles. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Many of my team members are very active on LinkedIn. Many of our larger team members at Gong are active on LinkedIn. We have SDRs that have built a huge brand and following on LinkedIn without even belonging to the marketing team. So that's been part of it. And the other part has been building a brand page, the Gong brand page that really engages lots of people. We're now at like 42,000 followers on our LinkedIn page, which is not bad at all for a relatively young startup at Gong stage. And all of those are organic. We're never interested in going out there and buying followers or, or getting folks on a click farm. This is all organic folks that saw really interesting content on our page and either saw one of their friends liking or commenting on it or got tagged themselves, which happens a lot. When people read articles on our page, they often tag other salespeople like, hey, this is what I was telling you all this time. And hey, Michelle, you've got to come check this out. So that's how they, they are exposed to our page. And then they decide to follow us for more content. So they're looking forward to reading our content every day. And here's a big secret. This is my cheapest demand channel because we get a ton of engagement when we post a good article on LinkedIn and then link from that to a download of a premium content piece that asks for people's email. We can get thousands of downloads in a day and that doesn't cost me a dime. This is completely organic. 
that's why I love this channel. I know that the people are there because they want to be. I'm not chasing them. They're coming to us when they're ready to consume that content. And yeah, I could not live without that channel. It's also a great combination of meet your customers where they are, right? Like, every salesperson is on LinkedIn all the time, right? I mean, would that be the best version? You know, if you were marketing to developers, like probably not. But for you all, it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. No, you might want to be on, uh, I don't know, GitHub or uh, sure. Reddit or, or wherever they're geeking out at the time. That's why I said it's very different for every industry. You've got to look and first show up where your folks are because it's way easier to show up and start talking where they are already than trying to pull them to your owned assets, right? If you want to bring them to your blog or to your events or your webinar, it's going to be very hard to do on day one. You're going to have to build that inbound motion to bring them in. Okay, what's the second uncuttable? Can you go into that? Yeah, that was the email. Our email list, it's kind of a similar story, but obviously also takes time to build. So we have a completely opt-in list of emails of people who have consumed our content and given us their email because say they saw a open article on LinkedIn and then they wanted to download the template or cheat sheet or something else or sign up for a webinar that follows up on the same content and then they gave us their email. Now they are willing to receive our marketing communications and uh, that's a huge email list of highly targeted people people that I know a lot about, you know, I can enrich that information with the variety of systems that you have today. So I know what company size they work for and what exact industry and what geolocation and what seniority they're at and what job title they are, et cetera, et cetera. And I know the history of their previous interactions with my content. And we use that to send out various versions of emails that are tailored to different reader personas. So even some assets I'll only send out to VPs and above. Other assets I'll send to individual contributors or I'll send the same asset, but with a different type of email appealing to the what's in it for me for that specific reader persona. So email list is huge. And again, similar to organic social media, the cost is close to nothing. It's all about creating the right content, sending it to the right people at the right time. There's not a lot of costs involved around that, just some hard thinking. Yeah, I mean, hard thinking, but also the talent piece, right? I mean, that's the other part where you spend a lot of time crafting the team to be able to write that and create that content, right? Yes, yes. I mean, there's no getting around getting the right people with the right strategy and then the right execution to create amazing, engaging content. If you want, I'm happy to dwell on that point a little bit on how we create that content. But obviously, you're not going to get very far even with the best email list and even with the best social media following. If you're creating trivial content that anyone could Google and find something comparable, then and just why waste their time? Yeah, go into that because I think that building a good email list is, you know, maybe harder than ever and creating something that people actually open every day is really difficult. Yeah, so happy to and I'll start high level and I'll pause every level and see how, how much deeper you want me to go. So I think at the highest level, when you want to create a successful content machine, there are three basic elements. One is the strategy around the content. Two is the packaging of the content and three is distribution. And I think in the last 10 minutes, we've talked mostly about the third part of distribution. I talked about our email list and our social media following. Let's talk about the content strategy. So good content in my book needs to meet three conditions to be really successful. One, it needs to be relevant to the target audience. Two, it needs to be interesting to that audience. And three, it needs to be immediately applicable. Let, let me unpack that for a sec. So by relevant, I mean, if I'm writing how to make better cold calls, that might be interesting for AEs. It's not going to be interesting for the VP sales or the 
CRO because she's not making cold calls anymore. So you've got to focus on who are you trying to attract and why is this content relevant for them? And we try and make that relevancy self-apparent, whether you know we subtly put the buyer persona of that content in the title of the content or some other trickery sometimes to make sure that they know that this is for them. Because if I, if I don't think this was written for me, I'm going to keep scrolling. I'm going to delete that email. So number one is relevancy, obviously. And that's why I said that we also package differently for different personas, even if it might be the same underlying piece of content. Two is interesting. So why should I care now? This should be something, this piece of content should be something that either I'm terribly interested in knowing today, it has some sense of urgency about it. The best types of content helps me solve a problem that I currently have and makes my day easier. So if someone sends me a template for running my one-on-one sales reviews, and that's something that I do five times a week, and this template can shave off 20% of the time it takes me to do that, that's probably going to be a useful template. Here's a real life example from a couple of months ago when um, you know this new economy started, we noticed that a lot of small deals that we used to close directly with sales leaders were now getting their CFOs involved. We figured that our customers are probably going through something similar and now they're talking to a lot more CFOs than they ever used to. So we quickly pulled together a template of how to get through your buyer's CFO. And within days, that content asset rose to the top of the charts of our most downloaded content ever because thousands of salespeople People were downloading that piece of content. Oh my God, yes, I, I'm having this problem three times a day now trying to get through the CFO. Thank you, Gong, for giving me this cheat sheet with what I can do to get through that CFO. So that's that's a great example of why the content is interesting. I think the biggest mistake that brands make here is that they start with what they want to say rather than what their prospects or customers want to hear and what do they want to consume. And so by starting from the customer side and then working back to how can you give them what they want in a way that also serves your brand in many cases, that's the right way to do it. So that's the interesting part. And then I'll I'll end with the third bit that I mentioned, which is making it immediately applicable. So I'd say 99% of our content takes less than five minutes to consume. There are a few exceptions like the odd analyst paper for enterprise buyers or uh, a podcast episode that might be 25 minutes long. But the vast majority of our content, the articles, the emails, the social media posts, the ebooks, they're literally a five minute or less read. And we found that with today's attention span of especially busy executives that we're trying to sell to, that type of content is hugely popular. If you're going to create a 40 page ebook like we did 10 years ago in content marketing, the only ones likely to read that are your competitors. That is so good. Oh man, that's so true. Conversely, I would say though that if you're going to make the 40 page white paper, go through the mental process of doing the 40 page, that there's value in creating the holistic, you know, like, hey, if we're going to write a 40 page white paper, what is every section and chunk and chapter of this that we can then piece out into the all the smaller bite sized pieces for when they need it right in that moment. But the exercise of building it holistically is still important. Yes, I've found, you know, as the years go by, that there are fewer and fewer cases where I can justify creating that 20 or 40 page white paper. Honestly, like in the four years of Gong, I think we've created one of those for a very specific use case. The days where we could plan six months ahead for a content project are long gone. I mean, we had to dump so many content projects that were just a, you know, a few weeks in the making when COVID started and we realized that we had to completely rethink our publishing calendar. We rolled out new content within days not weeks, not months, but days. We threw together our first amazing virtual event in two weeks. We just don't have the luxury of planning six or 12 months ahead for content calendars. And I think it's a joke if someone can plan ahead now 
a year ahead their content calendar in this fast-moving market. I mean, either your content is stale or it's just completely detached from what's going on in the market. How could you plan for this quarter six months ago? What plans could you have made six months ago that would be remotely relevant to your audience right now? You had no idea back then what they would be going through right now. So you have to be a lot more agile than in the past to keep up. And, and companies that are keeping up, that are producing timely content that is answering real-time questions and solving problems quickly, those are moving quickly ahead. The others are, are way behind. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll retract. I believe you. <laughs> you have me sold. The agility and the flexibility uh, sells me on it. I'm, I'm in. Okay, third, uncuttable. Uh, that would be our virtual events and webinars. Yeah, so that is the, the one exception I'll allow to the immediately applicable content. They're still immediately applicable. They just take longer to consume. So where I said that about 90% of our contents takes five minutes or less to consume, webinars and events can be anything from you know 25 to 55 minutes. Actually, our full-day virtual events, we've done two of them in the last three months. They were eight hours long, and we had thousands of people attend them and stay throughout the day. And we, we were amazed. We're, we, we were skeptical in the beginning that they would show up and stay for that long. But we managed to completely reinvent this format, a virtual event. It is not a long webinar. It is not just taking our field event content, recording it and streaming it for eight hours. It is creating this new beast that melts together education, entertainment, product updates, celebrity speakers, really fun and engaging and interactive activities. And, and we created this new experience that people are coming up, they're showing up and they're staying and they, they walk away with lots and lots of takeaways. And we see those events and webinars creating a lot of opportunities opportunities for us because once you've got someone engaging with your content for 45 minutes, let alone for five or six hours, they're showing some real buying signals. And if you tap into them in the right way at the right time, you're going to be able to move those opportunities much faster than someone who just scrolled through a social post or read an email last week. What about your website? How do you view your interaction with customers and content on your website? So the website has remained for many years the storefront of, you know, we've got to keep it squeaky clean and, and make sure that it caters to different needs of different people. But, but you've got to focus. If you're trying to be something to everyone, you're, you're not going to be anything to anyone. So I would say the, the main focuses of our website are, one, provide clear, concise information about the company and the product in the aim of converting those people that are ready to explore going further into a demo, a demo request. That is the sort of number one goal that the demand gen team uses the website for. The second use that we make of the website is to store all of our content. It's not always the first place that we publish it, going back to what we discussed earlier about first going where the audience is. So we'll usually publish our articles on LinkedIn first because that's where folks are, but then mirror that on our website for the SEO value and for the experience of people already on our website to make it easily discoverable. LinkedIn is wonderful for you know getting the audience reach in the first place, but they're terrible for SEO discovery and, and I can't control the conversion there nearly as well as I can on my own website. So it's also our big content hub. And third, sort of outside of the demand gen world is also where most folks go who want to work for Gong. So the career site is a very popular part of our website. I mean, we're, we're hiring 97 people right now that we need to, to get on board before the end of the year. So you can imagine we get thousands of candidates on our website at all different locations. So we've got to keep that part of the site squeaky clean and effective as well. Do you have a favorite campaign or a campaign that was maybe your, your best learning experience that wasn't the best campaign? Yeah, I've got both. 
So it's probably kind of uh, weird choices, but they've stuck in memory. So I'll, I'll mention that. I and mean, we do, you know, several email campaigns every week and several social campaigns every day. But one that I think is a great example of our approach to email marketing and how we do stuff is, I think it was in February this year. Remember, we all got that wave of emails of, hey, Ian, we've updated our privacy policy. And everyone was sending out to all their customers privacy policy updates because some new privacy law came in. And so we had to do the same. And I'm guessing 99% of companies, they just let the lawyers write it and send out an email apologetically that they had to send something out. So at Gong, we treated this as an opportunity to engage with our customers. And I briefed my team in three words on how to write this email. I told them, don't make it boring. Okay, that's four words. I told them, don't make it boring. And they went and wrote an email about our privacy policy update. And they sent it out to the many thousands of users that we had to legally send it out to. And the subject line was, our lawyers made us write this. <laughs> what open rate do you think that email got? Oh, man, that had to be high. It was high. It was 40%. We got a 40% open rate on a privacy policy update email. That was the start of the reactions. Now, when you went into the email, yes, it had the link to the boring policy that you could go and read on our website, which... I'm sure some people did, but more interesting, it had a Britney Spears gif and it had funny language about, you know, we're being made to do this. Nobody wants to write this. Nobody wants to read this, but here it is. And this is what it is. And people got such a great laugh out of that moment that they screenshot the email and started tweeting it on Twitter and posting it on LinkedIn. And that's how I found out that the email went out to my marketing ops team, sent it out. And, and suddenly I saw that we were being tagged on Twitter and LinkedIn. So I went in to see what this is about. And people were posting our privacy policy email, titling it like the best privacy email that went out this year and other great titles like that. And that's just a good example. And thousands of people ended up engaging with it and talking about it and commenting and sharing like literally thousands. And that's an example of taking the most mundane silly email that nobody wanted to send out and putting just a little bit of thought and effort and personality into it and make it into a delighting moment for our customers, a moment that they'll remember. And they're like, yeah, this is why I like doing business with this company. They get me. They know that I, I need some lighthearted entertainment. And even in a boring email that most companies actually let their lawyers write, they made this a funny moment for us, enough that they would go and share it on their own social media. I mean, I haven't seen any other privacy policy email being shared on Twitter and LinkedIn. So I think ours landed pretty well in that respect. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether it was with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a famous dust up? I don't want to disappoint, but I, I think we were all like really well aligned at Gong. I, I will say that to, to not leave you completely without an answer, I will say that there's definitely healthy tension with finance. They are the on the other side of the fence there. And ever so often with sales, around justifying our investments in marketing and finance, and especially their FB&A function, can be very scrutinizing about why are we spending this much on billboards and why are we spending this on this channel versus that channel and why do we need so much swag here? And that forces us, you, know, you, you could 
you could do two things in response. One, you could get all defensive and go, and this is probably what I did much earlier in my career. I'm like, hey, you folks don't tell me how to do marketing and I won't tell you how to do finance, but that doesn't get you very far. And that's sort of letting the ego get the best of you. I think the better approach that we take now is, okay, thank you for raising that concern. Let me go get the data and rationale and explain this to you and then come back with the data and show them that, A, they might have been right. We might be spending too much on swag or billboards. Or what more often happens is that it forces us to think in advance on how are we going to justify these investments and just make better decisions when we know that we might need to defend these decisions in the boardroom or with our CFO or with our CRO, how can we explain these decisions? And if we can't explain them and defend them to ourselves, then we might want to rethink them. Maybe there is a better way of investing our funds because they're always going to be limited. Even when I had $100 and now that I have a few millions of dollars and even when I get tens of millions of dollars in my budget, there will never be enough. So I've always got to make really smart decisions about how I'm going to use that how much of it I want to be able to trace back to actual demand generated, and what's an acceptable percentage that we're all comfortable with that I'm spending on things that are going to be hard or impossible to measure, but they create a a warm, fuzzy feeling around our brand. And that can be something like uh, billboards or certain aspects of events that, that are harder to measure. Before we get into our quick hit section, I'm curious, what do you think is is next for demand gen? What are some other demand gen things that that you've had rattling around in your mind or or things that have worked really well? I think a couple of things are happening that are hard to ignore. One of them, in recent years, ABM, account-based marketing, as a marketing philosophy is dominating B2B marketing. Started probably, I don't know, almost a decade ago, give or take. Back then, it was just a few geeks trying it out. And now I don't know a B2B marketing team that doesn't at least have a plan or a philosophy around that. On my team, I have dedicated people with ABM in their title. And I think that's going to be a growing part of how marketing teams operate in B2B. I mean, the whole idea of first starting with who my target audience is and then focusing my marketing on them versus the standard carpet bombing of let's hope that some of my target audience happens to be where these marketing nuggets are landing on them. The ABM strategy makes a lot of sense for for B2B. And I look forward to the day where the tools and the strategies are going to be easier to use and integrate in a way that allow me to spend most of my dollars in an ABM way that I know that I'm targeting only the right people with my content and I'm getting easy access to their engagement with it. And today there's lots of tools and lots of bits and pieces that you've got to work hard to connect. And even then you don't get a really clear picture. Don't even get me started on attribution and things like that. But so that's one trend that I don't see going away anytime soon. The second one, and this weird time, it's a little strange because we're not commuting almost at all and we're not getting out of our homes, but I'm still very interested in connecting online and offline experiences, whether it's billboards or in last uh, Dreamforce, I uh, rented 20 cars, 20 shared ride cards, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers, and I wrapped their cars with Gong branding and I had them swarm around Moscone Center in San Francisco, picking up and dropping off visitors to Dreamforce and use that to hijack a lot of the traffic. And then I got retargeting information on the routes of those cars picked up from cell phones of people in their route so I could retarget them with digital ads. So that's like a really interesting integration of offline and online that I think is in its very, very early stages. And we're, we're scheming a few interesting uh, things like that, even in these crazy times right now that I can't fully disclose yet. 
but I'm very interested in seeing how to connect offline and online better because I'm growingly aware of the fact that buyers don't go through that neat buying funnel that we all imagine because it's easy to draw on a 2D piece of paper, but rather buyers are in a tornado of engagement with us and other buyers and other vendors and they're consuming information everywhere they go when they're dropping off their kids in the morning or when they're going out to a restaurant in the evening or when they're sitting in a Uber. And I want to be where they are and keep the mind share that I need for them to come back to me eventually when they're ready to buy. And the offline online connection, I think, is going to be a very interesting part of that. And especially now when it's relatively complex to do, I think companies who can get ahead and do this right are going to win more than their share. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to somebody on your website using qualified.com. We love the good people at qualified.com and they're the exclusive sponsor of this podcast. Check them out, qualified.com. Quick hits. Udi, are you ready? I am. What skill or hobby have you picked up during quarantine? Oh, I've gone back to playing classical piano a lot more than I used to. If you weren't a CMO, what do you think you'd be doing? I would probably be someplace in the live entertainment business. Uh, I've dabbled in music and magic and stage lighting and stage sound. And I, j- I just love that whole theatrical world. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show you've been binging recently? I do not. I honestly don't watch TV. And the only times I used to listen to podcasts was on my morning commute. But I never miss an opportunity to recommend the book Influence by Robert Cialdini as really the Bible of any marketer. And if you want to get ahead and you haven't read it yet, you, you have to because everything else is that we do in marketing is built on that. Great recommendation. Love that. I'll check it out. I haven't, I haven't yet. Go for it. What's your best advice for a first-time CMO as they're thinking about demand gen? It might be counterintuitive because it's not really about demand gen, but become best friends with your CRO or VP of sales. You have to understand and put your ego aside that you are there to make sales easier, not to win marketing awards or or get clever. And you can't build the right demand gen machine if you don't understand exactly what your sales team needs. So understand at the deepest level what they're selling, to whom they are selling, and what's going to make their life easier. If you manage to make sales lives easier, you will have built a successful demand gen machine. It it is that simple. Udi, that's all we got. Any final thoughts? No, really, really uh, glad to be here today. And if anyone wants to learn more about uh, revenue intelligence and check out Gong, just go to gong.io and you'll find a friendly uh, bulldog waiting to chat with you and take you to the next level. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you very much. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.